Welcome to the Motoring Podcast, an alternative fuel special edition. Hello, I'm Alan. Hello, I'm Andrew. Alan, what is an alternative fuel special edition then? Well, people who've been around a long time will remember episode 35 way back in April 2016. So, Oh, when we were young. When we were young. Yeah. <laughs> I would say before we're really good at this, but um, yeah, that's a bit of a claim. Um, yeah, uh, when we we spent an evening chatting to Rich, Rich Gooding um about alternative fuels all the different acronyms and all that kind of stuff uh and that was three years ago so we figured it was about time that we revisited it are you trying to say that perhaps the alternative fuel world has moved on slightly since then well i'm kind of hoping so <laughs> maybe Possibly. do we have anyone with us that will be able to help us out with that well we do because we've got uh alex grant a motoring journalist specializing in alternatively fueled vehicles hello alex Hello. And Tom Callow, an EV expert, is joining us as well. Hi, Tom. Hello. Cool. So, yes, we do, is the answer to that question. <laughs> People who actually know what they're talking about rather than just us. So Always wise, that, Alan. Always yes. Wise. Yeah, we've discovered that one over the years. Um, <laughs> so we're going to run through a couple of – we've got a couple of topics to, to cover with these with these guys to get their opinions on uh, as opposed to ours, which you, you hear pretty much every week. Shall we dive in and get started? I think so. The first topic we were keen to find out, really, from you guys is what are the options that are out there whenever it comes to alternative fuel vehicles? I mean, we we mention every month when we're doing the SMMT registration figures. See, I got it right that time. We mention alternative fuel vehicles. And first thing, really, is to try and remind ourselves what that comprises of and also what the best uses for each one of them. Tom, would you like to have first shout on this? Okay, we go. So I think you know the the oldest, in a way, form of alternative fueled vehicle in the UK is probably what people would just call a Prius uh, in many ways, because it was uh, the first of the sort of normal normal hybrids, full hybrids, mm-hmm. and I think people would associate the term hybrid with Prius usually. So there's a uh, there's a big bunch of uh, standard hybrid cars in those figures. Uh, they've got another name which I won't mention, uh, as uh, from a marketing department. <laughs> something, but, about, um, <laughs> something about charging, isn't something it? About charging. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and obviously some some of the latest stuff, some plug-in vehicles, uh, both plug-in hybrids and full electrics. Some years ago, there used to be some biofuel, some uh, some uh, some biofuel vehicles in the mix, which was interesting. And I was, I was scanning back through some figures a while ago to look at the takeoff of the different technologies. And if you look at the the first eight years of of hybrid sales in the UK, full years of hybrid sales from about sort of 2000 or the late 90s, uh, you end up with about sort of 50,000-ish vehicles over that period of eight years. In the first eight years of plug-in car registrations, you get to about 135,000. Um, so pl- the plug-in car market is definitely accelerating faster in the first few years than the, than the hybrid market. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's down to the way the government have handled how they're taxed, particularly thinking business-in-kind type stuff? I think it's a. I think that's definitely part of it. I think because they're genuine. In my mind, they're them. They're more genuinely alternatively fueled in the sense that people realise you can run most of those vehicles a decent distance on electric power rather than petrol. Mm-hmm. I guess the the, the irony of, a, of a, a standard hybrid is obviously that it's not really an alternative fuel because you're, you're you're putting petrol in it. It's going to do some some regenerative braking and stuff on the way. Um, but fundamentally, it's, if it's take, the fuel it takes is petrol rather than anything else, I suppose. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, true. It's interesting in you saying about the, the plug-in numbers and how quickly those rose. Alex, you've got a lot of background in, in some of the fleet-type stuff. So mm-hmm. do you know if there have been similar kind of – if the fleets and their ad- adoption of some of the plug-in technologies has, has helped with those numbers much, much more than they did with, say, biofuels or even stuff like um, – uh, LPG as well. Yeah, I mean the the big changing point seems to have been about five years ago when the when the Outlander arrived, and then all of a sudden the market went from being quite a small number of of EVs to being heavily swung in favour of plug in hybrids, and that's been sort of the case ever since. It hasn't really dropped below about sixty percent in the last five years in for it, of of plug in sales going towards plug-in hybrids yeah. the benefit and kind advantage for for those vehicles and the fact that actually unfortunately i think plug-in hybrids have suffered a little bit because they are very easy to to take as an alternative to a diesel and not use properly which is not the fault of the car but is the fault of the fact they've had a lot of uh, incentives put in there put in their <laughs> direction 
that have made them very easy for people to kind of go, well, I've, I've just come out of a, a diesel estate car and I'll move into this. Not, yeah. I don't necessarily have to plug it in. If I don't plug it in, I can just keep putting fuel in it. And Yeah, I, I met a guy who was boasting about his ability to do that, yet he was getting all the tax break and I, I had to walk away. Well, they're, they're horrible cars to use if you don't use them properly. Generally speaking, they've got quite small fuel tanks. Um, I ran a 7 Series plug-in hybrid last summer. And it had about a forty-liter fuel tank, which is it's smaller than I mean, I've got thirty-year-old Polo, and it's it's got a bigger fuel tank than that. <laughs> Generally speaking, if you use these cars, in, I mean, I think that the, oh, I'm trying to remember, it's about the same size on the three series as well. If you use it like that, you'd be constantly putting fuel in it. I mean, these cars mm-hmm. do thirty-five to forty miles per gallon, quite a lot of them, if you don't plug them in. And it's just it's a frustrating thing to to use incorrectly, and it's a real shame. And I think, unfortunately, that is. A lot of that has come from people who are getting the whole, the full in, yeah, the full incentives of, of being fleet drivers. I know mm-hmm. certainly for Mitsubishi, the Outlander, they were expecting it to be more retail-weighted at first, uh, and actually the fleet ticket for that car was very quick. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly what it was initially, but it's it's now ever so slightly retail-weighted, but it's pretty much 50-50 now. But certainly at the beginning, they, they just suddenly had this kind of runaway where they hadn't really been in the company car market before and the Outlander came along and it was <sighs> suddenly it was they were there. And people don't think of things like, I mean, the, the C-Class and the 3 Series are both amongst the UK's biggest selling plug-in cars. Mm-hmm. And people don't think of either of those cars as being plug-in cars in, in true fleet. So in your, kind of your company car market, the 3 Series is something like a fifth, a fifth of all company car 3 Series of plug-in hybrids a couple of years ago. I mean, it's selling massive, massive numbers. Yeah. Whether all of those are being used in in the right way or not, I don't know. But it's that's not, as I said earlier, that's not the fault of the car. That's that's the fault of people not perhaps having the right policies in place to make sure they go to the right drivers or that those drivers use them properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very difficult actually to have the right sorts of controls to make sure that people are using them and to to be able to to sort of to track, I guess, that they are being plugged in and, and charged i was going to say properly but i don't know that's a really a proper term but i suppose if some if you if your company uses and sorry we're getting really in the weeds here but um yeah. if you if your company uses a fuel card you'd be able to monitor it that way and i suppose that would be the one way you would do it but if somebody's on the company pcp or they're getting you know the extra slice of money to get a car to do business miles you've got no control then at that point apart from educating them and saying well this is the way you should use it and crossing your fingers yeah i'm trying to remember there, there is there is a company that was taking them back off people if they weren't using them properly and they were monitoring the data i can't remember who it was well it'd be costing them be, money but, yeah well exactly yeah it yeah. was tmc uh the miles consultancy put out a load of data about plug-in hybrids and they were higher on co2 output and low fuel consumption than petrol or diesel counterparts for all the vehicles that they were monitoring and that was that is again just says that people are not necessarily using properly and it's such a shame because i mean i've got an outlander at the moment i'm Mm -hmm. two and a half months into using it i'm averaging 48 miles per gallon obviously that doesn't count the electric use but all but six days a week that car is an ev i charge it every night at home i charge if i get an opportunity to plug it in while i'm out and about i do so most of the time i don't need to and where it counts when i'm in town it's an ev most of that 48 miles per gallon average is, is down to using it on the motorway Obviously, emissions count everywhere, but if you're going to, as opposed to crawling through traffic with a petrol or diesel engine running, mm. you know, when I do the school run in that car, it's not using any fuel. And that's the right way to use it. And it's a real shame that the technology is, has, has been abused. But it's not, as I said, it's not, it's not the fault of the technology, it's the fault of the user, unfortunately. I'm just talking of pups not understanding the technology and everything. Maybe some of the listeners don't know this, and I know I certainly get very confused by this. What what's the difference between hybrid, mild hybrid, or you know the various grades that we get told? Generally speaking, I start. I mean, I think the definition on uh, Tom touched a little bit on it earlier with the the kind of the Prius side of things and not being an alternatively fuel vehicle because all of the fuel comes, you know, all of the the motive power comes from petrol tank was it, it wasn't about the fact that it's uh it, it doesn't i mean it's not obviously it is able to generate some power without kind of um directly from petrol i give it that mm-hmm. yeah um i mean that's that's a uh, i think that i think that i think the um i mean I've, I've i was always a big a big fan of hybrids some years ago and i i recommended a lot of people buy hybrids actually probably back in sort of 2006 7 
you know, friends, university I went to, all that kind of stuff. Because they were, the, in my mind, the sort of one of the best things you could buy at the time if you wanted to reduce emissions and, and, and drive more efficiently. But I think, so I've, I'm not, I'm certainly not sort of anti-hybrid in that sense. I think there's a, I think there's a bit of a, a, a something going on, a sort of rep, misrepresentation of what they can actually do is my, is my challenge in terms of there's, there's certain things they can do and certain things they can't do. I don't think a, a standard hybrid can ever get near the efficiency levels of a, a uh, sort of a plug-in hybrid if, if both are used correctly, if that makes sense. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can misuse a plug-in hybrid. You can drive it around all petrol all the time. And actually, you can do that with a with a, a standard hybrid as well. You know, you can drive it like a lunatic. And, or you can, you know, if you take a Prius and just drive it up and down the M1 or the M40 all day, you'll never get anywhere close to 60 miles per gallon. But if you drive it around town, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Uber drivers saving a lot of money compared to their old diesel cars by driving Priuses, I'm sure. There's an issue as well around, I mean, the mild hybrid thing is whenever I've written stories about alternative fuel vehicles, I wouldn't even count mild hybrids as being alternatively fuel vehicles. I mean, they are very, very, really. It is, yeah. And there's a lot of people claiming to have electrification or 100% electrified ranges within a certain number of years. And you kind of go, yeah, that's not the same thing as having 100% electric or even 100% plug-in or even 100% full hybrid, which to me are worlds away and there's a gap this is the gap between mild hybrid and full hybrid and there's a big gap again between full hybrid and plug-in hybrid and i think it's a shifting of terms so i think this alternatively fuel vehicle is going to start excluding non-plug-in hybrids at some point as tom touched on earlier with the prius where what would counted what have counted before as being a, a an alternatively fuel vehicle it's not really you need to shift that definition as the cars the technology changes with it and here in the UK, the government's starting to do that already, aren't they? By by looking at when the when the grant comes in, depending on the number of non internal combustion engine mm. um, miles that that can be done. Yes, uh, aren't, aren't they? We've worked our way up from hybrid, plug in hybrid, full EV. Obviously, comes comes in here, which is a favourite topic of mine and Tom's. <laughs> <laughs> that's really next up isn't it in in the list if we're going that way is a battery electric vehicle there we go that's that's what i missed was the b in my little list there we've got another special edition coming out after this one where i will talk about the kona ev i had for a week the other week but i think probably for me one of the biggest changes since since we lasted one of these three years ago is is actually the choice of proper evs uh battery electric vehicles that there is now and the kind of range that you can get out of an affordable, reasonable monthly PCP type setup of EV, and and I don't know what what either of you think about those. I, I totally, I mean, I totally agree. The the range of vehicles you can now get, and and the range of those vehicles in terms of how far they go, is a huge, uh, a huge sort of um, shift for the industry. So, I mean, one of the points that was that was being made earlier about you know the kind of the Outlander and and, and how that had an impact on the plug-in car market in the UK. But actually, the, the, one of the amazing things in a way that Mitsubishi did was obviously they brought it to market and said, you can have a diesel Outlander or you can have a plug-in hybrid Outlander, and they cost the same. And that was that was a massive thing for, for both retail and fleet because they looked at this and thought, well, there's no there's no compromise, basically, because we can choose exactly what we want. There's no kind of technology penalty. I think in a way that sort of happened in the, in the sort of plug-in hybrid saloon market as well because a lot of people went out of diesel cars and they went into the equivalent car which was a plug-in hybrid version of that car rather than a full EV. So, that, you know, there is no full EV 3 Series uh, yet, for example. No. Um, so the, the kind of if, if you went out of a 320D or a 330D and you were trying to get into a plug-in car, either to, you know, to genuinely save, save, uh, save fuel or to actually get some sort of financial incentive, you're probably going to end up in the 330E in, instead of a, a full EV, maybe. That shift in landscape to bring in more pure electric cars is, is, is really significant. I, I sort of have this line I use, which is range is the new luxury. And I think a lot of people actually are going to go from potentially what have been regarded as quite premium brands into things like Kias and Hyundai's, which perhaps traditionally haven't been regarded as premium brands because actually they've got this thing called lots of high range that's sort of being seen as a, a luxury good in a way. Being able to drive 250, 300 miles on a charge is almost a luxury. So I think there'll be people that will be quite happy going from a, you know, a BMW into a Kia without any kind of badge snobbery going on because they're getting this sort of this new luxury thing called long range electric driving. So I think that's going to happen. But yeah, the, the, the shift in models is fantastically quick. Most OEMs are obviously kind of bringing out vehicles in the next 12 to 18 months that can do that kind of mileage in some segment. 
what's interesting is obviously that it's a lot of it's focused in the SUV segment. So you're kind of ending up with quite large, maybe quite heavy battery electric cars and not, not so much movement at the, the smaller end. But it's a it's a big shift. Um, and in a way, we, we in the UK to did a, did a shift to, to BEV or you know, battery electric car in a way, perhaps too soon, in my view, in that maybe, maybe we sort of worried various people along the way that they uh, they had to kind of jump straight into one of these cars rather than transitioning. So we had things like the Ampere in the UK and the Chevrolet Volt. We didn't have much in the way of other plug-in hybrids before things like the Leaf came along. So people jumped into the Leaf straight away without maybe transitioning through other technologies. So definitely going to have, have an impact. Yeah, I often joke that the G-Wiz set back EVs in this country <laughs> by about at least five years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah I'm not a fan of the g I'm, I'm, I, uh, For better or worse, I'm not a fan of the G-Wiz. I, I, there's a debate around whether or not it was a good thing for EVs. Um, yeah. And the promoters of it will say it was this amazing car that sort of helped people in London uh, make the shift to electric cars. And actually, most of the ones I saw in London uh, had a very, very large diesel SUV on the driveway next to it. So it was being seen as a very cheap way to get into the city uh, without getting on the tube. And that was that was about it, I think. And, uh, and they, they were pretty dangerous to be in as well, having driven one. Yeah, oh, I've, I've never, I've mercifully avoided being in one. Um, but yeah, you just, just people driving them it just was not somewhere that even someone as dorky as me you know could 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 picture and feel like i could get away with driving or being in being in a little bubble like that but, just picking up on something you said there tom about uh, how people perhaps transitioned some people transitioned maybe a step or two steps further than was possibly wise and uh, initially do you think that's a an oem uh, manufacturer's need to step up the education and and show the show the differences and what is suitable for what types of use so that people can come into it better prepared and yeah. and, and make a make an informed choice yeah i think it's the responsibility of of, of people that are making the cars but also people that are, are selling them or supplying them mm-hmm. so there was a really good white paper produced by ald automotive uh, about a year ago i think alex well, alex will maybe who have seen it and it was about plug-in hybrids, and then and, and ALD ran a, I think a fleet of about twenty uh, mm-hmm. plug-in plug-in hybrid C-class um, across a range of drivers. They had to go to people that were in sort of commutable distance from I think their offices, and they just tested, you know, what what would be the kind of the drop-off mileage at which point it becomes a sort of law of diminishing returns once you start getting into the sort of tens of thousands of miles. And I think they worked out it's about eighteen thousand miles a year. So you know their sort of rule of thumb was basically if you drive more than eighteen thousand miles a year. In this kind of vehicle, you're probably better off not getting a plug-in hybrid. But if you mm-hmm. drive less than that or up to that, your you know, plug-in hybrid can work if you charge it appropriately, you know, yeah. when mm-hmm. you can. But yeah, I, th- I think that the terminology isn't necessarily helpful. So we tend to regard in our, in our company sort of electric vehicles as those that you can plug in or at least those that you can charge externally. So, you know, maybe there'll be wireless charging, who knows? And everything else is not an electric vehicle. Um, but a lot of people actually disagree with that. A lot of people say to me, well, actually, an electric vehicle is just a pure electric stuff. So they wouldn't regard, say, a, a, an Outlander as an electric vehicle, whereas, say, I would. Um, so I think it's about, you know, can it can it drive a significant number of miles on electric? Yes, then it's an EV. Can it not? Then it's, it probably can't. I think terms like hybrid we were useful. I think they're increasingly perhaps sort of muddied as terms. I think it's almost worth saying to people kind of, you know, what can this vehicle actually do? And, and, and sort of people that are selling cars, whether that's an OEM or a dealer or retailer, uh, understanding the, the person that they're, you know, person in their showroom, you know, what, what's your use case what do you drive um how many miles how many miles do you need to drive every day or every week and, and going from there so um i know the experience center that we uh, operate in milton Keynes has that sort of attitude where you know it doesn't necessarily recommend an ev to everyone if you come in and say you do 500 miles a day and um, you there probably isn't the right ev for you today um you could um, be a right idiot to do for 500 miles yeah, a day probably <laughs> insane insane Alan, I think yes. is the word you're looking for there. <laughs> yeah. and not require much sleep no exactly it's definitely education 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 though. i think that's the, that's the key with evs at the moment is actually education awareness is the is the biggest problem to uh to perhaps more rapid adoption in my view mm-hmm. and the experience center is excellent i popped in because i was in milton Keynes anyway a little while ago just for a nosy because i knew it was there and i'd never been uh, and so i went and, and had a quick a quick poke around and, and that's exactly the attitude that was taken whenever the, the chap came up to ask if i drove an ev and what i knew about them i think i scared him off for a little <laughs> but that was exactly what he was doing so uh so no it was, it was great it was, it was i'd recommend i've actually recommended colleagues and friends go um as well when they've been looking for new cars to try and say oh look go find out and it's not just me telling you this and evangelizing go speak to someone 
Well, I think yeah. we've done the electrification side of things, but there is a another side to alternative fuels, isn't there, that is becoming more backed financially and occasionally with bits of infrastructure, but that's the hydrogen side of things, isn't it? Yeah, well, country, fuel, fuel cells before, in general. Before you, before you get too cross with me, I'm talking particularly in this country. I know Europe is better. I, yeah. I've discovered it depends where in Europe. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hydrogen's an interesting one. It's it's one of those ones that's always sort of sounded like um, kind of a, a magic bullet, really, hasn't it, for EV adoption? But it's also something that's always sounded like it's going to be 10 years away. I think we're finally at the point now where it's starting to sound like it's it's less time than that away. Three of three to five years away probably i'll come back to that in more detail in a minute but i think it's it, the, the the thing that's always appealed with with hydrogen from a kind of a mass market adoption point of view is it sounds like it offers what we're used to and my opinion on hydrogen has, has shifted a little bit over the years that i've been writing about evs and particularly now that the evs have, have come along such a long way in such a short space of time it's easy to understand why you you would look at it and you go Three or three or four hundred miles to a tank, refueling time in a few minutes. All the benefits of electric driving. The only emission at the, at the exhaust is um, uh, water vapor. It all sounds very appealing, but actually, now that we're in a in a position where you've got EVs that are doing two hundred, two fifty, three hundred miles to a charge, once you start living with an EV, and once you start getting used to the idea that rather than having that range and going and refueling it somewhere say once every week, once every couple mm-hmm. of weeks, that you just get home at night, you plug it in. Now, this was kind of actually something that I realized through my wife, is that once we started having kids, for her, the chore is not getting a cable out of the boot of the car and plugging the car in at home. It's actually loading the kids up and taking three now tired kids to a fuel station to fill up with fuel. And actually, I mean, most people, yeah, not to, to, to sound like I'm putting EVs down, most people I think, don't actually think necessarily care whether they've got petrol, diesel, hybrid, electric, fuel. What, we don't care what they've got under the bonnet. They're looking at kind of cost and convenience. Does this fit my lifestyle and can I afford it? And, and actually, increasingly, EVs are able to, to, to afford that, but also actually offer a better ownership experience than they're used to because they don't have to make those fuel trips. They don't have to go and stop off in the fuel station on the way home from the supermarket on a, on a Sunday. And the reason I come back to fuel cells with this is that actually for a lot of people, that, that long range that we've become accustomed to is not necessarily a requirement. You've got a vehicle that will do all of your needs, but you don't have to make those special trips where you just charge it wherever you are. So yeah, I mean, I can, I, I can, I can certainly see the appeal. Uh, my yeah, my opinion has shifted in that I think now that you'll probably find they're quite complementary technologies, where EVs will suit perhaps the majority of passenger cars, but then the heavier, longer journey vehicles are going to move into yeah the stuff that would always be diesel will move into the sort of fuel hydrogen fuel cell. So we're um, talking like three and a half tonners upwards, yeah, uh, that sort of thing. Maybe even the really large vans. Yes. Yeah. Where they've where they've super super long wheelbase sort of something well, and Ar- that Arctics sort of thing. Arctics and stuff, Andrew. Yeah. Really proper. No, no, yeah, I know, but that's why I mean, but st- sort of starting there and going upwards. Um, you know, buses and things like that. Yeah, that would be my. I mean, buses. Buses are different. different. Yeah, because yeah, you can you can have them running around short routes and charging quickly when they when they pull up at stops. We had one. We had a trial actually in Cardiff last summer, which got a lot of grilling on uh, on social media from people who just don't get it. Going, well, it's running off a diesel generator, right? Okay, but can you imagine the electrical supply they need to put in? They'd have to put in the ground just for the sake of a trial of how it's like two or three month trial. Imagine the uproar of kind of needing to put all that infrastructure in the ground only not to you know not to use it long term. Of course, it's going to run off a generator for now. Oh, demonstrating something. Yeah, wireless. Um, charging uh, when if it comes in bus lanes Crikey. yeah i mean that's uh, oh yeah yeah of course of course uh, I, I just hadn't thought that's true sorry if you just realized yeah yeah because exactly right. well you might yeah, have had not, a rear not like view you alan i don't i don't think about buses that buses. often yeah. you, you <laughs> might have had a rear view guest recently who possibly yeah no we did talk about wireless charging but we, we were talking talk about, about wireless charging uh, yes. pedestrian uh, uh consumer vehicles rather than buses and things mm-hmm. like that Oh no, he and I had discussed buses previously. Yeah, I bet you had. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think Milton Keynes has got like something crazy. Like they've got some 120 kilowatt wireless chargers, something something insane. Which mm. I 
kind of you hear it and you go that can't be true but i think it is actually true it kind of gives them a really quick boost yeah kind of contact plate so it's not it's sort of wireless but it's um there's a little bit more contact than the, the wireless stuff that we've we've trialed as retrofitted technologies i mm. saw that there was uh actually i saw that there was a bus route in geneva that was that looked like it was they were getting ready to put in, you know, the sort of the sort of pull up to the stop and make the contact yeah. and and charge uh, set up because there were little signs up along up along the route. Yeah. Uh, so one of the ones from the airport right down into the middle of town. It looks like it's going to be doing that. Yeah, That's I think there's point. I think there's a great opportunity um, in coaches actually, and I know there sort of doesn't seem to be a massive distinction between buses and coaches, but actually, I think BYD or someone like that did this piece of work on all the UK bus routes and found out that you know you could. Even with today's sort of pure electric bus technology, you could probably electrify 94, 96% of all UK bus routes because they were short enough and they, they were predictable A to B and back to A to B to C and back to A again. Kind of thing. Uh, the, the co- I always, when I'm in London, and driving to London in EV and you see these you know, huge sort of kind of cross country coaches pulling, you think, where, I wonder where that came from. You know, has that driven like 200 miles to, to get into London, for example? And, and how's it get, how far has it got to go again to get out? And actually, the coach market is probably a, almost a, a better candidate for some of that stuff in, in things like hydrogen. Um, mm-hmm. and, and buses obviously already running on hydrogen and electric in London. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I think I'm, I'm with Alex on the um, on the heavy vehicle stuff. I think I'm obviously a, a big fan of uh, of uh, electrification and BEVs. But I, you know, I know Tesla's obviously got this uh, semi truck, as they call it, which they're testing in the, in the US, and they've done a few deliveries. I think they've done some nice PR shots with their semi delivering uh, some lovely pictures, delivering yeah. five, five or six Teslas on the back of it. Which um, I'm not sure it's done more than that route anyway. But anyway, who, who knows? It, it could it could be a, it could be a um, it could be an absolute silver bullet. I don't know. But until someone until I see it, you know, we've had years now of, of people driving hundreds of thousands of miles in pure electric cars. I think until someone can show a pure electric, you know, forty four ton truck, yeah, you know, chomping up and down the uh, the UK's motorways, I think I'll. I'm probably in the in the more reserved camp where I think may, maybe hydrogen that in that sector of the economy just makes more sense in terms of the use case of the vehicles, you know, return to base, mm-hmm. all the benefits Alex talks about being able to charge an electric car in multiple places. You know, you can charge at home, you can charge at work, you can charge overnight. You know, that doesn't really benefit you if you run a bus because you know you don't want to stop halfway on a bus route and pop into you know a car park, plug it onto a charge point. You need it to go all the way around the bus route and charge overnight, and that's kind of it. Um, which which something like hydrogen could do probably equally as well. Mm-hmm. Although with regards to the heavy, some of the heavy vans, I mean, your kind of last mile stuff where you're really going into town could easily be you know electric. I mean, you've got Ford bringing out electric transit van in mm-hmm. uh, in 2021. Volkswagen got the E-Crafter. You know, you've you've got it's it's. I don't think it's a you don't it's not a one or the other solution as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. In the same way that I don't think petrol, you know, petrol and diesel have their own uses and have had their own uses this is much the same i think they're, they're two yeah i, I agree with you i think this is a much more nuanced topic that it, it seems very battle lines have been drawn mm. very clearly that it's well it must be this or this and you think well no actually if you look at a journey of say a parcel you order something on the internet and it arriving at your door mm. there are so many different modes of transport this still needs to go through and so many different people handle it we need to we need to be thinking about that as as the public as well, because obviously experts are thinking about this, and that's why we we hear, oh, there's the autonomous little pavement delivery things are being talked about and stuff like that. Which you may guess I'm not overly yeah, but you're confident you. of confident of is how I put it. But you know, you know, as a small uh, depot that does a, a bunch of small electric vans to do the last couple of miles and stuff that makes that makes a lot of sense to me particularly somewhere like london you know with the bigger bigger urban areas um but i but i think we just we just all need to appreciate that's what's happening and i don't think we do understand that because we never think about it we just go i've I've ordered the thing i want the thing here is the thing and that's it and we don't understand the processes i think we've become used to a lot of range we've become used to vehicles that can do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles on one tank of fuel and actually just I wonder how much energy gets wasted in the UK alone every year moving tanks of full tanks of petrol and diesel around. I mean, that, that weighs something, especially, I mean, it's not so long ago that you buy kind of ordinary insignia sized cars with 68 litre fuel tanks. And actually, yeah, there's 68 litres in the insignia. I drove one from Luton to Russellsheim and back without stopping to refuel. For the majority of people in the UK, you don't need that. And actually, 
the ALD study that Tom referenced earlier, I think it was about 80% of journeys could be done on electricity hmm. on, this, uh, on, on the plug-in, sorry, on the battery range of the um, plug-in hybrids. And actually, these were C-classes, so they're not the longest range plug-in hybrids on the market. And they were saying something, it's somewhere in the region of like 95% of journeys, once you get over 200 miles, 95% of journeys can be, um, yeah, can be done on, on, yeah, on electricity, you know, you, you can mm-hmm. substitute ninety five percent of the fleet's journeys for battery power. Yeah, so it's just, it's just, be, yeah, it's what you said. We're used to it, and it's almost laziness. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because we we just well, we get in my car, I do the thing, and I'm there. You know, ignoring I've filled up at least once. I've stopped a couple of times. All these other things, but and and people don't also appreciate how how little mileage they actually do do. Mm except for maybe once in the summer when they, they invade the Southwest or something like that. Mm-hmm. You speak for yourself. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I came home from Heathrow in the Outlander and I had a double bout of range anxiety. I got home with three dashes on the battery and three dashes on the fuel uh, fuel tank <laughs> because I'm hardcore. I got home late. I realized as I was rolling you know, the last few miles up to my door that um, were this a normal petrol diesel car, I'd have had to have stopped at a fuel station. I drove home, plugged it in, and the following morning went out and got fuel on battery power. It's it, it's a different way of thinking. I think people have got very used to a certain way of, of thinking about it. They go, oh, yeah, but how long does it take to take to to um to charge? Yeah, you know, actually, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, only if yeah. you're doing crazy stuff. Only if you're trying to go around the UK in six days does it actually matter. Yeah, yeah. because you know, a friend of mine moved from move from a, a, an EV to a, a plug-in hybrid. And he said, it's terrible. Mm. He said, because before I went out to the garage, I unplugged it. I got in the car. I drove, you know, if I was going to London, I drove to work. I got into the garage there. I'd plug in as we've got charges in the car park, plug in there, uh, go off, do my meeting, claim my normal amount of mileage allowance, uh, come back down <laughs> into the, uh, you know, back into the car, unplug it, get in, it's full, drive home. Get home, plug it back in in the garage. Never had to go. So the biggest inconvenience of this of this plug-in hybrid is that I have to go to the fuel station sometimes. That I actually have to think, oh, do I have enough petrol? Hmm. So it's really inconvenient. Once you've got used to like two or three years without that, this is a pain. Hmm. It's, it's getting people out of that habit of thinking hmm. they've got to have several hundred miles in the tank at any given point. Yeah. Quite if, often they don't. If I had a home charger, I would never have had to bother plugging that code in anywhere mm. other than at home because it just just didn't need it for me it's re- reached a point what i've been waiting for with evs is can i do home to heathrow leave it for three days in february with whatever vampirical losses mm-hmm. there are and then know that i can get into that car at nine o'clock at night and drive home get a home plug in and that that's me I don't want to be having to to stand for 10 or 15 minutes somewhere on the M1 or just off the M1 having to charge up the car when I just want to get home. And so for me, for me, that's been the big driver because I know that if I'm not doing that, it doesn't matter. Anywhere further than that, I can plug in. Mm. But Heathrow's distinct lack of charges uh, in the car parks mean that that's, that's, yeah. that's my one concern. But the other thing is, as you start to get I mean, and this is slightly going back on what I've I've been talking about previously. But for the people who don't have off-street uh, parking, the other thing is, as, as vehicle ranges get longer and you can do one week's worth of miles on, on your battery, you can then go off and on the weekend, and you can find somewhere with you know a suitable coffee chain and a 150 kilowatt charger nearby as they start to pop up around the UK, or faster if you've somebody buying a you know a Porsche Taycan. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, there's a 350, 350 kilowatt charger on on that car. Um, yeah, it's, it, once you've got a car that can do that sort of range, and you can go off and have a coffee and you know charge it to get your weekly mileage back while you're uh, while you're having a coffee, it, it goes against a little bit against what I was saying earlier about losing that yeah you know, the convenience side of it. But you'll be able to trickle charge, you know, during the week. Yeah, mm. Triple charge, not the right word in that context. But you know what I mean? You'll be able to top up it during the week when you get opportunities mm-hmm. to do something. You can graze. Can you imagine if you had to go and take your mobile phone once a week 
to the supermarket to go and charge it. You've got your battery in it's the size of, you know, run your run your phone for a week or a month, but you've got to take it to a you've got to take it to a supermarket once a month and, and plug it in. You've got a QRK fine, it only takes three or four minutes, you know, to, to plug it in and fully charge it, but you've got to go and queue at a mm-hmm. drive you mad. It's just what you're used to. Mm. Um it's yeah, it's not as inconvenient as people think it is. No. No. Should we move on to the favourite myths? Yeah, because I think that that I and think, not in inverted commas for favourite. <laughs> yeah, because that ties in quite nicely with the the the, the how often you need to charge it mm. type one. So I mean, uh, who would like to go first this time? Alex, do you want to go go first this time? Oh, I should probably leave the charging stuff to uh, to Tom. Yeah, I, w- I would. I would. Fair to do that. Um, <laughs> it might be a smidge more clued up than I am. No, I mean, I, I think as a, as a car enthusiast, and I'm I am coming at this as a, a dyed in the wall car bore of almost almost my entire life. The the one thing that I find talking to other fellow car bores is that they tend to they, there is still a perception out there that people think that they're boring or that they're not very powerful. It, that is eroding steadily. Tesla's had a big you know a big uh, a big role to play in that. Actually, they're good fun. They're, they're good fun to drive. There, there are yet, aren't yet many kind of dedicated performance EVs. Those are starting to come along, and it's not really fair to compare something like a Leaf, which you have to think of in context as next to a petrol or diesel. I won't say Pulsar, but like a Golf or a Focus or something. Petrol, diesel, Golf or Focus in a similar spec is not an overly exciting car. Neither is a Leaf. Actually, the Leaf is, I would say, nicer to drive personally. Out of the two, I would say. For me, I mean, I, I will, I will probably always have some form of internal combustion engine classic car of some sort in in the garage. People sort of say, does that not tell you that you think that actually the the EV is not good enough to be the weekend car? And actually, no, that's not the point at all. The point of saving the ICE car for the weekend is that it, to me, is the flawed car. Actually, I want to take that out of use for the the, the grind work. I want to save that for the moments where it is you're enjoying that for what it is, and actually that's not that's not putting the the EV down. That's saying I prefer to drive an EV most of the time, but that I've still got this. It, most of them, most of the cars that I aspire to, the classic cars that I aspire to, aspire to own, happen to be internal combustion engine vehicles. It's not a reflection on the EV at all. And actually, people talk about performance. You think about the Japanese. Um, I won't claim this anecdote of my own. I was interviewing somebody from Mitsubishi in Geneva Motor Show a few weeks ago, and he was saying about talking about getting people around to the idea of electric uh, pickup trucks, saying there's still a perception that there's a lack, lacking in performance. And he said, there's no problem with pulling power with EVs. He said, if you think about the uh, Shinkansen trains in Japan, the bullet trains, they're not a combustion engine vehicle. And he's right. It's it's getting people's heads around the fact that these are these can be high performance, yeah, durable, yeah, long lasting, great alternatives to combustion engine vehicles. No, well, I've seen some people still say things like milk floats and things like still, you know, these. Oh, which I heard that the other week, was, which that, always makes me like... want to scream. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because it, it's so far away from that; it's ridiculous. It's I mean, it's laughable, but um, particularly for journalists, emerging journalists uses that phrase. But for some people, a lot of you know, people who don't, well, we care about this stuff. A load of people don't. As you said before, they don't care what's in there, what's driving their vehicle. They just want it to be, you know, is it convenient and all the rest of it. So it's, it's letting them know these things. I, I had a very interesting conversation on a car launch about 10 years ago. Um, it was for a performance car that I won't name. But the manufacturing question brought out a first generation of this performance car. A heritage fleet vehicle for the journalist to drive so i had the opportunity to drive drive this car and i've always wanted to it was a yeah, popping and banging and kind of you know the real kind of the experience of driving the car was was wonderful and stuff but then i drove the new one and it made all the same pops and bangs and so on and over dinner i was chatting to an engineer and he realized that actually modern cars are so brilliant at getting rid of all of these noises and all of these kind of the character that we come to know in these vehicles that actually the modern version of the car made the rasping noise because it had a resonator in the airbox. It made the popping and banging noises on gear changes because it had been programmed to do so. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go, hang on a minute, this character that people seem to insist, you know, internal combustion is a wonderful character. In a lot of cases, 
there's no reason why if you're really that desperate for that sort of popping and banging and all the rest of it, you couldn't fake it in an EV as well. It's mm. just, it's, it's a different kind of faking it. It's going to be a controversial view, I know, but it's, it, it, <laughs> but you, if you get what I mean, it's that kind of people, the, there are some cars that have got a, a character to the engine, but in a lot of cases, it's it's there's a lot of stuff that gets programmed into it because new cars are so very good at masking that that noise and the kind of the, the things that we know as as being character. It's put back in afterwards. It's just but a, but does that not give the extra perception of refinement in an electric vehicle because there isn't that stuff? Because um, that's one of the things I felt when we did our six day, and you know this is a couple of years ago now, it's two and a half years ago, whatever. 18, uh, Eighteen months. 18 months yeah. and things have moved on so far since then that it just felt so refined and this was a mid-sized family vehicle hmm. yeah absolutely yeah which, which one one of the ev launches i went on they'd had to change supplier on the um wiper motors because the there was no the the, the usual supplier that it used for these parts was the, you could hear when you were driving the car you could hear the the motor of the of the of the wiper blade every time, yeah, the wiper motor every time they kicked in. So, yeah, I mean, I think that'll be uh, you know when I get in and out of our our um, fam- when I get in and out of our family car, um, nothing wrong with it, but it's it's it, it feels quite coarse compared to drive. If I'm used to drive, driving the Outlander for a few days, um, it's it's not a particularly noisy car, but it it feels. It, it feels like a step back and there's that kind of you get used to the idea of kind of going down to the regenerative braking modes and so on and hybrid and, and and not wasting that energy yeah remarkably quickly i mean i know that i just as i say one week and then i got into my own car and started it and i was like whoa 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 all this noise and all this vibration and oh oh wow um, yeah because you forget you just completely forget and i'd done what 450 miles and that was all it took for me to then to then get you know complete shock when i forgot into my head and the vast majority of motorists won't miss that noise no. and in no. the vast majority of cars you wouldn't miss that noise i mean i i wouldn't i don't value our our family car more because it makes a grunting noise when i start it up <laughs> I, I would quite happily have it not do that so yeah agreed tom you must have a, you must have one or two of these up your sleeve there's some well there's there's the sort of hilarious one like you know there's people that genuinely still don't think you can take them through car washes and all that sort of stuff um, oh i did laugh when i saw that headline oh Jeez. yeah i mean there's there's you know and and there's i think the biggest thing obviously is about kind of you know the, the lack of the lack of infrastructure and it's almost the fault of the the way infrastructure has been deployed that a lot of it's not very visible um for various reasons so you know lots of the old historical stuffs owned by local authorities and it went in local authority car parks and it went around the back of the car park where the power was and therefore people don't see it so the most common thing is people say well there's no infrastructure it's sort of the laziest line in 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 this whole debate really is there's not enough infrastructure and when you show someone a map of where they live invariably it's them them saying uh you know kind of that there's nothing where they live and sometimes that's true sometimes if it's in the middle of wales at the moment that might be true but actually more often than not you know they you zoom into their town they go okay i didn't know all that you know that rapid charger was there or that those two rapid chargers were there i didn't realize there was a charger point my local supermarket either and actually it kind of it becomes easier but i think the most sort of if you like serious one is that people the biggest myth is that people think they're lesser cars i think that's the the key thing for me is there's there's an assumption that there's some sort of lesser car to drive or you know, they're, they're this sort of massive compromise and why would you ever want to drive one? And as soon as people try them, you know, invariably they kind of think, oh, okay, I, I kind of get it now. So, you know, that's why this sort of experience part of driving an EV, it's, it's so important just to get people to try them, you know, and I, there was a, you know, the, I think one of the best selling uh, Renault Zoe dealers, I always tell this story, but I think one of the best selling Renault Zoe dealers in the UK was a guy who just it told everyone that came into the Renault dealership to drive a Zoe. So even if they said, look, I'm, I'm here to drive, have a Kajar, I need a big SUV, and that's fine, I'll sell you a Kajar quite happily in a few hours, but I'll drive this Zoe first. And he'd sort of almost forced everyone <laughs> to just drive them. And and that's how he, I think, yeah, he sort of, he sort of ended up. To get out into the car park, you must go through the gift. Yeah, 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 exactly. But people loved it. You got great feedback. And um, and actually, I think, again, I, I'm a big fan of just getting people to try the technology because then they see it. And particularly the performance point, as Alex says, I think the um, the there's a sort of famous anecdote about the i3 which is that it was faster to 30, I think, than an M3. Um, so I'm you know, told, yeah. And it's, it's um, you know, it's a hoot. You know, you drive around London and you sort of beat bikers off the line and there's a guy that tapped me on the you know, window once in the i3 and sort of said, 
and was really embarrassed and sort of said I've been driving a motorbike around London for the past 10 years and I you know I beat everything off a line you know Ferraris you know all the sort of supercars in Knightsbridge and you're the first person to ever beat me to 30 and I'm a bit embarrassed about it really um, and wanted to know what it was but you know he, he he was yeah he found it quite fun but he had no idea that you can EVs were that kind of were that sort of performance uh, orientated car or, or can be so I think that's the thing is people look at an electric car sometimes or people I speak to sort of almost when I say they'll drive an EV they almost sort of think oh yeah poor you it's almost like a a substitute product and actually think well quite enjoying it really <laughs> uh, bmw actually tried i3 m3 drag race on the launch they had a closed section of brands hatch it's a video on my youtube account of uh of the, the 0 to 30 drag race between a, an i3 uh full ev i3 not a rex yeah um, going up against an m3 um and it was one of their experience day m3 so it was a stripped out m3 and it's it's hilarious to watch this kind of m3 making all this noise and it's like and it catches up with it eventually, but it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a thing to watch. Not, not to, um, I mean, there's a sort of serious point here. Is that the alternative fuel thing is one thing about, you know, we should be redefine that. But the 0 to 60 thing, one, one of the biggest things I think you could do to push EVs in the UK is actually change performance stats. So rather than every magazine, every website, every whatever, you know, every brochure saying how far does a car do 0 to 60. When did you last do 0 to 60? I can't remember the last time I did 0 to 60 anywhere. <laughs> but you know people for the most part do naught 30 every day you know naught 30 something you'll do 10 times in succession in a day naught 60 might be something you do yeah okay you can do it in the odd scenario here and there but yeah. it's such a more relevant metric to use and if you did that you'd quickly show up a lot of cars as being a, a lot more superior in electric mode mm. yeah i mean because that's that's one of the stats that really gets to me about some of the EV manufacturers are boasting about not to 100 in this many seconds. You say, okay, but that's not the point. That is not the point. Yes, show up, educate people that they are not, uh, you know, they are not a compromise. They are not a milk float, you know, all this sort of stuff. But don't, don't, don't no, bang on about that. No, you see, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you, Andrew, because there's a surprise. I, I don't, yeah, <laughs> but it, but it's an extreme measure. And if you don't say, well, this is what you actually do and look how good it is. And people won't pay any attention to that whatsoever. What you need is an extreme measure that they go, Are you wow. trying to say that society today will only listen to extremes, Alan? No, I'm not saying that whatsoever. <laughs> what I'm saying is that it's easier to market, to market an extreme. You go, look at, the, look at this high number and look how mm -hmm. quickly it gets there. Um, and yeah, that, yeah. that's, that's mm -hmm. what people will listen to rather than, and say, well, you know, if you, you, you know, 90% of your acceleration is not 25 miles an hour. So what we're going to do is we're going to show, look how quickly we can go from not to 25 miles an hour. I mean, I, I, I hate not 60. It's a horribly arbitrary number, but it, well, I know it's not, it's, it's not 62 and it's a hundred kilometers now, which, you know, it's the same problem. But yeah, I, I I understand exactly why you do it with the extreme number. I think as well, if you uh, from a, a kind of a nerdy point of view, if you're looking to match your uh, 0-60 book figures, it's easier to do that in an EV where you haven't got to worry about changing gear than it is uh, to try and do it in a petrol car. <laughs> is, point, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you put your foot down and go. <laughs> Alan, have you got a favourite myth? Um. I don't know. It's kind of they've kind of been covered, to be honest. The one for me, and I, I did mention it before, is people overestimating what they need a car for. Mm. Oh yeah, that for Ooh, me is we all we all think we do more than we actually do in it, and we do it more regular and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's another good one. That that starts to tie into the range as well, doesn't it? Mm. There was the uh, there was a was a BMW study in the US last week was it about the seventy five mile claim the they did some research with consumers and worked out that most of them actually would would, would be happy with a seventy five mile range EV as in oh yeah theoretically not not yeah. not sort of, they wouldn't go out and buy one necessarily tomorrow but they kind of worked out that actually that would basically do almost everything for them and I mean I drive a eighty ish two hundred mile range EV at the moment and it does do virtually everything without me even thinking about it. And then it's that odd trip where you think, oh, okay, hang on, where am I, you know, where am I actually going to charge on the way back? Because I do need to charge on the way back sort of thing, which is the, the sort of edge case. But actually for day-to-day -day stuff, you don't really need much more than that. Yeah, but, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we were always planning our routes dramatically anyway. Mm. <laughs> so I'm sorry, we're all younger than that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have a, a, a favourite 
a favorite myth and it's the trouble with the favorite myth one is it doesn't really come down to to evs or or plug-in hybrids or any of those it's the one about how dirty our electricity the, you know the dirty electricity one the one yeah um you know the one the it's all coal burning whatever it's like um well it depends where you are in the world actually um and the fact that that is used as a quick well that's just it's all dirty anyway it's like really yeah because they get a lot of um a lot of coal you know they burn a lot of coal in norway uh, no they burn <laughs> none of it. it's 100 percent renewables and then even here in the uk it's it's been it, the other week it went to 12 days without any coal using any coal to actually generate electricity here in the uk it's the whole somebody does something based on part of the US where they also burn bituminous coal, not anthracite like they do here in the UK, and say, well, this is this is what we've measured in and I'm gonna pick Minnesota arbitrarily. But you know, this is what we've measured in Minnesota, so it must be the same everywhere. It's like no, 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 you're right. Some places electricity is is can be a bit grotty. But you know, in plenty of other places, no, you're you're wrong. You're simply wrong. Uh, and that one really, that one really gets me. The whole, you know, the you, we've all seen the little cartoon, yeah, with the car and it's plugged into the socket, and out of the socket on the other side is this big cold, yeah, yeah, belching yeah. power. Oh, oh, oh. so Facebook tastic rubbish. Of course, everyone knows that fuel stations are only put on top of naturally occurring springs of ninety seven, ninety percent wrong fuel. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, wheel, wheel to well is a very difficult thing. A well to wheel is a very difficult yeah. thing to measure. There's a funny number of people actually will will, uh, will that there's a weird group that will always track back whenever I talk about an EV. They'll always try and track track back my emissions and say, "Well, hang on, you know, I want to trace your emissions right back to source." But they'll never do that with their you know internal combustion engine. But you got You got to treat things in the same way. I'm all, I'm all for whole whole life cycle CO2 and emissions you've got to look at the whole footprint of things but you've got to do it fairly across the board and if you're going to do that for an EV you've got to do that for an ICE as well um, and I think yeah I think the global average CO2 from electricity now is about it's not far off what the UK used to be eight nine years ago you know when I sort of started out doing EV stuff it was I remember I'm using like 470 grams per kilowatt hour of CO2 something like that and it's now about 170 grams you know on average day to day I think so there's been huge reductions in the UK, but there must have been huge reductions elsewhere as well to get down to that sort of average figure. So, mm-hmm. Should we gaze into a crystal ball now, Alan? Uh, we could, but let's keep on podcasting. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, guys, what what do we think is, is coming up next over the next, I don't know, whatever period, 5, 10, 15 years? Tom, what do you think's coming up that's going to... I think, I think that we'll focus on efficiency more. Um, so I think we'll realize that it's not just about bigger and bigger batteries. You know, big big batteries are one way to get a long range car, but actually another good way is to make my car much more efficient. Mm-hmm. So I remember doing a, I did some PR around a, a Rolls Royce some years ago that was the uh, the Phantom Experimental Electric. It was a pure electric Rolls Royce concept car. And I think it had a 76 kilowatt hour battery or something like that. And it did about 100 miles of range. So it did about, it was something like 1.7 miles per kilowatt hour. Um, and that was sort of best in class, you know, best in class EV was basically 1.8 miles per kilowatt hour at the time. And, and now we're in the kind of three, four, five miles per kilowatt hour route. So I think I think gains in efficiency, you know, improvements in things like motors, thermal efficiency, battery management stuff will mean actually that you might get, I think maybe not in five years, but maybe in 10 years, I think you might see things like a, you know, a battery that's say half the size that can do the same range, you know, as a battery today, because we'll have worked on efficiency. And that's that's good for all sorts. That's good for manufacturing because it means you've got a lower footprint for that battery production, but it also means you're, you know, you're charging less, potentially to go the same distance or, or whatever. That was something I, I noticed, you know, in the, the 18 months between Ionic and Kona EVs from the same manufacturer was the slickness of the automa- of the regen function mm. and just how much more efficient and how much more that seemed to kick in and how much yeah. more range that gave me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a cracking one there. Yeah, uh, Alex, how about you? Yeah, I, I would agree actually with what Tom says about efficiency. It's become very much focused on the size of the tank, so to speak. Yeah, the, it's very much a range uh, range based discussion at the moment on EVs, and I think that that has to change because there comes a point where 
you can't just keep fitting bigger and bigger and bigger batteries. You have to make the technology more efficient, make better use of those. Uh, from my point of view, I mean, I, I see just a kind of an, an ongoing progression towards more and more electrified vehicles. And I'm not talking about mild hybrids and all that comes in at the very, very, you know, very, very fine tip at the end of it. I think you'll see plug-in hybrids becoming more like extended range vehicles where the, the engines will get smaller, the motors will get bigger, the batteries will get slightly bigger and that will kind of help bridge the gap for those who you can't still can't quite live within yeah within the confines of a, where where EV range shapes in the short term but i think ev and fuel cell is is kind of a an inevitable yeah i think we're on a, a the, the march has, has definitely begun i think there's been a big change in public perception over the last few years towards combustion engine vehicles i think there's much more awareness of it much more willingness to change i mean if you look at france now they're, they're describing combustion engines as being the new smoking um in france and, and you could see how that will start to catch on and yeah it, it, it doesn't take that much of a string in you know in public opinion before they start you walking your kids to school and you, you can taste the the fumes in the air and you start to think actually there is an alternative to this and why are we doing this it's so for me i i I think that, uh, yeah, it's just it, the future is becoming more and more electric, basically. I think we need to take um, full credit for that, Alan, you know, because since since the podcast has been about, uh, I think think we have made that happen much faster in the public perception. I'm, I'm not all to do with Dieselgate at all in any shape no. or form. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I'm not prepared to take um, any responsibility whatsoever. Thank you very much, <laughs> especially when you put it like that. But, uh, but no, I, I think you. I think you're right. It's curious that that the French should choose it should choose yeah. internal combustion and new smoking. <laughs> stand around, stand around outside, looking cool. <laughs> a load of a load of combustion engine cars parked around it, parked yeah. outside cafes, idling. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a horrendous stereotype. No, it's okay. You <laughs> saved me making it. It's brilliant. Yes. <laughs> you thought it much better. Than I was, I was, I was led there. To be fair, yeah, yeah, you were quite badly. <laughs> Your Honour. <laughs> but at least, I mean, they're being very stern about it, and that's that sort of thing will will catch on. I think people are more aware of uh, of, of of the fumes that they're breathing in. But that's only going to become more common. And the technology is now there to replace it. As I said earlier, it's about cost and convenience. Once you have someone walks in to, to a dealership, and most people are not that bothered what's under the bonnet, as long as it suits their lifestyle. And now there's a, a growing willingness and a growing awareness of that there's good good functional technology that's not a G-Wiz to replace. Yeah, so why would you mm-hmm. have a, a yeah. petrol or diesel in most cases? Yeah, I mean, I, I, much as we sometimes shake our heads and possibly quietly cry about Dieselgate because we have to cover it and <laughs> because we've, we've, we're in the game for that long. It has helped bring proper public awareness of what is happening when someone starts their car and, you know, the differences between a diesel and a petrol and now, um, you know, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, electrics, hydrogen. It is, it, there is now this, uh, there is an education going on. It's not always correct or right, but there is an education going on and people that seem to be, uh, as you say, Alex, people seem to be willing to to learn and pay attention to it. Mm. And that, that has to be a good thing. Mm. Absolutely. I can't, I, I can't even describe how much nicer the, the school run would be in the morning. If, if everyone was at least in plug-in hybrids, it just, it would be so much nicer. Uh, you've got to be so blinkered and so, I don't know, so much of a dinosaur to believe that the world, you know, that, that sort of journey particularly would be would be better with everyone in combustion engine vehicles. Mm. It doesn't matter how clean they are. And, you know, I mean, I know that combustion, you know, the modern combustion engines are a very clever thing, very high tech, very impressive piece of technology. But the thing that always sums it up for me is, and someone put this to me a few years ago, he said, you take the cleanest combustion engine in the world, you start it up, Lock, you know, you're in enclosed. You've got a choice of being in an enclosed space with the cleanest combustion engine in the world or uh, an EV. Both of them are running. Which one do you choose? Mm-hmm. It's uh, unfortunately for the combustion, internal combustion engine that that's that kind of uh, move of that kind of awareness of that is 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 it can only can only need one way. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think so. On which point it's probably as as good a time as any to 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 round up 
and to just really say thank you to both of you for giving up a chunk of your evening a fairly significant chunk of your evening <laughs> uh, to join us and uh, to and to have a bit of a chat and hopefully that's that's uh, that's given people a little bit to think about and a little bit to to agree with to to disagree with folks if people would like to follow you find out more uh, continue the debate tom what's the best way to get in touch with you and to um, and to follow what what you do and what you think so I'm a prolific over over user of uh, of Twitter. So uh, be- best way to find me is on there. Uh, so so my handle is basically automotive. So it's uh, au underscore tom underscore otive. Um, you can see what I did there, and uh, and uh, I'm uh, I'm on there uh, far too often uh, saying things I probably shouldn't be saying. So uh, feel free to engage, debate, and uh, and I'll try and give as good as I get. Cool. And Alex, how's about you? I'm pretty uh, easy to get in contact with on Twitter. Uh, my username is Alex Grant UK, and that's yeah, I'm on there all the time. So, gold, feel free yes. to uh, drop me a line. <laughs> <laughs> Links will, as always, be in the show notes, so people can just click through. Abs- absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, don't forget you can get to those at motoringpodcast dot com. So, I said, Alex, Tom, thank you so so much for your time. Um, yep. It has really been appreciate absolutely that. brilliant. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, no, pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. So, everyone else, don't forget between now and the next time, you can give us any feedback and share your thoughts with the show at Motoring Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, on Facebook, and on the contact page of motoringpodcast.com, the hub of all our activities. Uh, remember that subscribing to our podcast is free, but you can donate via our Patreon, available at motoringpodcast.com slash support. And please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or however your podcast app lets you do such a thing. It really does. I was gonna, almost said it really doesn't matter. It really <laughs> does matter. Andrew, if people want to continue this with you, what's the best way to get in touch? Best way to get in touch with me is via Twitter. If you search for Crack Windscreen, you should find me there. And Alan, if people want to talk to you or maybe give you some advice on marketing and PR, what's the best way for them to do that personally? <laughs> uh, Twitter, as ever, where I'm at AJP Bradley, B R A D L E Y. Uh, we'll be back before very long. But until then, I've been Alan Bradley. I've been Andrew Clues. And safe motoring.